This episode is part of our ongoing series with NI Connections, where each month we have the chance to sit down with someone interesting from Northern Ireland who's living and working overseas. To find out more about our global diaspora, listen to previous episodes in the series and sign up for a free monthly newsletter. Please visit niconnections.com. Thanks so much and really hope you enjoy today's conversation. So if, I suppose one of the earliest things, I grew up on the Cafell Road and uh, I always can remember um, my uncles coming along in a Land Rover at the beginning of the month of August because every August we went to Donegadee for a month to stay in the same house for our holidays. And uh, we took everything with us, including <laughs> the TV and the bicycles. And my uncles had a Land Rover and we used to load it up and take it down to Donegadee and we'll be there for the month. And we went to the cabin for ice creams and out stream fishing on the mm. boats. And uh, it, until I was 18, we went every wow. year to Donegadee. That's incredible. I mean, what sort of TV are we talking about here? That's probably... You needed a Land Rover. <laughs> well, we did. I can, I can remember when we got a colour TV from Czech Rentals and the house that we stayed in in Donegadee didn't have a TV, so we had to take our TV with us. Wow. So talk to me about agricultural botany. Number one, tell me what on earth that is. And number two, if you're born on the Cave Hill Road, I assume you're going to come from some sort of a farming background, but maybe that wasn't the case. Not at all. Not at all. My uh, father was in the Ordnance Survey, so he made maps and um, my mum uh, was uh, at home. And so when I had career advice uh, when I left the academy, it was at the time, if you were good at science, you applied for medicine. And if you were good at arts, you applied for law and you have to have a safety subject if you didn't get your grades. So I didn't get my grades. So I went to Queen's to do chemistry and I found out that the best degree that I could get was if I did botany. And so I changed my subject about three times and ended up doing botany. And all I really wanted to do when I left Queen's was to be a teacher and to get mm. go to teacher training. And I didn't get into teacher training because oh, they didn't think I was good enough. And so I was offered an opportunity to do a PhD um, in agriculture botany, and that was funded. And I wanted to get married, so I wanted a job. So I ended <laughs> up doing agriculture botany. So that's how I ended up uh, going to the civil service and doing my PhD part. Wow. So help us with a, a bit of definition or like maybe paint a picture for us. Botany, what actually is it? So basically, it's the study of plants. But what I was doing um, was really trying to understand. I always say my PhD was finding out if grass was green. So <laughs> up at uh, Cross and Creevy, it is one of the places where um, uh, you test different plants, so sorts of grass, to enable the breeders to get royalties if they have a unique um, seed. And then they can sell it and they get the royalties from it. But you have to prove that it's different from every other sort of grass that's ever been on the market. So the trials for Europe are actually done um, in Northern Ireland because it's a very good place for, for doing grass. And so what that. I was doing was um, developing the new system for Europe to be able to tell all these grasses apart. And so every day I would go out into the fields and be picking different plots of grass and seeing what colour they were and measuring them and coming up with that whole new system. Um, so, wow. and I learned how to drive. Yeah, and I learned how to drive a Land Rover then. So I never knew how to do that. <laughs> and then yeah, you didn't need your uncles anymore. No, and then I also um, had people you always used to know because I worked in grass. They wanted to know about their lawns. And of course, I didn't know anything about lawn care at all. So I used to have to ask the caretaker at the agricultural research station, Herbie, what do I tell people if they say about their laws? That's great. <laughs> it's interesting though, like in some ways, I mean, I'm definitely finagling this pretty hard. You were working in intellectual property, you know, like you were like in that patent sort of world almost. That's kind of Yes, weird. yes, it was. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't really know anything about that. 
um, sure. until, you know, I got, uh, you know, offered the opportunity um, to work there yeah. to, to do my PhD. So, so growing up then, let me think, Cave Hill Road, so what, the waterworks, you've got the mountains there. You do have a, a fair bit of nature in that part of the city. It's, it's a nice part of town. Well, I always liked gardening, so I did. And when I did like my biology uh, A-level project, it was all on plants as well. So I've always liked plants and those sort of things, but never, ever thought I'd make a career yeah. um, of it. And if you if you are looking at like an eleven year old Maddie, like what sort of things is she obsessed with? Like what does she love? Uh, she absolutely loves doing handicrafts. And yeah. Everybody thought I was going to be a domestic science teacher. That was what they thought when I went to Cavefield Primary School. I was just really, really good, and that's a passion I've had my whole life. Loved doing yeah. anything with handicrafts. And cool. And yeah, so did that, and then played hockey and uh, swam and did all those things you normally do. Nice. So when you were doing your 11 plus, just so happened to be the year that the troubles started? Yes, I can remember my uh, first first two days at the academy. Never got a full day in because there were bomb scares both days. Um, so um, I think that, you know, that wasn't uh, by, coinc- you know, by coincidence. But I've always a lot of time for uh, my mum and dad because I always think I had a very normal and happy upbringing. I never think it's different from anybody else's, but sometimes when you're talking to people in America or you're talking to people in England about what it was like growing up, you go, well, maybe it was a wee bit different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm so far removed from that whole world. Like, you know, I'm a child of the Good Friday Agreement yeah. and I've grown up in peace. But even subtle things, you know, even me a few generations on, we talk about like, yeah, I remember that one time like we went to, I don't know, castle court and there was a bomb scare and your american friends are like oh my gosh what you know what i mean but for us it's just like so normal yeah exactly exactly so crazy so you are working for the department of agriculture in northern ireland you're in the civil service like you say and then what on earth possesses you or how on earth do you make the jump into the tobacco business in wales did you want to get out of northern ireland was that important to you Uh, no i never wanted to leave and I wow. always, you know, my life plan was um, I would uh, get married, teach, uh, have a family and finish work at 27. And that would be me done. Live near my <laughs> mum and my sister, to, who I'm very close to. So that was the life Great. plan. That's a killer 10-year plan. I like yeah, so, <laughs> the exit uh, strategy, just yeah. 27. Yeah, exactly. And so it didn't quite turn out that way. So what happened was um, there's not that many places that agriculture botanists can work in northern and so there was an opportunity um, that uh, Gallagher's really was the big change for me, that they um, basically were setting up uh, a huge, at that stage, R&D department, and they had a plant science um, department of which um, they needed a plant scientist. And I applied for that job and got it. Um, and I had done enough research on my PhD to be able to write that up. So I started working at Gallagher's and writing up my PhD at the same time. Oh, and then, nice. yeah, so, and I was doing that for three or four years. And I was running all the external research in the universities um, that um, Gallagher's was doing. And then um, I had taken two weeks off um, to finish up writing up, up my PhD um, and there was an announcement coming that for the first time ever, the company was going to pick two employees to put through an executive management program. But they wouldn't consider married woman because it wasn't suitable for married woman. And so <laughs> I didn't really want to do it. But I just thought, I'm taking two weeks off to write up my PhD. And now I've been told there's, you know, career opportunities are getting closed down. Because I'm married. I don't think this is fair. So, of course, I went in and I talked to the people and said, you know, I don't think that's fair. And so they took that restriction off. And I went through the whole selection process and ended up as one of the two people. And that really is what changed um, my life. So everything that's come is a thank you to Gallagher's. Because what was really important there was you um, had to learn how to do sales marketing and be uh, in production. But on top of that, you had to do about 20 management courses. And Gallagher's philosophy was 
you were going to be with the company forever. And so you needed to learn how to manage people, because if you could manage people, you could manage any discipline. And Mm -hmm. you got very, very practical experience of actually having to go in and, you know, do sales and be a sales manager and go to a factory and run a factory, etc. And, you know, it was pretty risky because at that stage, if you didn't make it through the two year course. So um, Paul, my husband, was still in Northern Ireland. I was away two weeks and coming back at the weekends. Um, If you didn't um, make it, there was no job to go back to. Uh, So you were risking it all, sort of. Um, But by that stage, Paul had decided that um, he really wanted to move into pharmaceuticals um, and needed to move to England for that. So the fact that if I got through this, Gallagher's would move me and the house prices were very different in Northern Ireland than London. Um, So we basically um, (laughs) saw this this as a way of getting, you know, moved over to England in an affordable way. So interesting. uh, And then I got through the course and they wanted me to be a production manager um, in factory in Wales. So I went in as their first woman production manager and ran the packing department. So, I mean, that was a pretty massive risk for you to take, considering that you weren't even really that interested in the opportunity. It was more so the the snub of married women not welcome. And you're like, hold on a second. Like, yeah. what made you pursue that opportunity? Or was it just one of those moments in life that you kind of just get swept up? I think, you know, as I look through all of the things that I have done, it really is because it's there, you go for it. And I don't know what <laughs> so I don't know what it is. It's not because I've never had a plan or never could imagine the opportunities that have opened up to me. Um, and I think it's just, you know, if it's there, you go for it. And my father used to say to me, you've no decision to make until you're offered something. And I think wow. that probably is has been good advice in uh, in life, you know, go for it. And it's, you know, you have to get it before you have a decision to make. So true. And don't we so often talk ourselves out of things or, you know, try to play crystal ball instead of actually let's go and get a few options and then we'll make the decision, you know? Yeah. 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 Fascinating. So that was, that was the bridge then. That's what I was really yes. interested in. How do you go from botany to business? And then from that moment on, things just seem to absolutely take off. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that the um, education that I got in Northern Ireland, which is, you know, you have, a, if you're doing science, you have an idea, you go and you test it out and you learn from it and then you course correct. Business strategy, marketing, all of those things are exactly the same. They're just mm. reapplied in a different way. Um, and I think it took me a long ter- time to sort of put that together of why um, those things were uh, easier. So It's really interesting. So, okay, well, I want to s- spend time dwelling in detail on certain aspects of the journey, and then I want to skip over parts of it. So this is sure. one of those skip moments, okay? Yeah. How do you then get to Coca-Cola? So um, I decided that um, I wanted to go into marketing. Um, Why? What was it about marketing? So one, I realized that people got promoted quicker. (laughs) And I realized that um, if I wanted to have a family, I was going to have to work. Uh, Marketing paid more than other aspects of the company. So it was a pure... Brass tax. Yeah. So um, that was the decision. If I was going to have to be out at work, might as well do marketing, promote it quicker, you get more money. So that was the, so that was a decision. And I realized if I wanted to go into marketing, it was going to be very hard to stay in tobacco because I needed to get TV advertising experience. And uh, so when I went for the interview um, at Coke, um, Coke seemed to be a good place to land to put the tick by TV advertising. Oh, I mean, it's the place, was it not? <laughs> well, it was, and especially, you know, when I joined, the other thing you've got to realize about the Coca-Cola company is it's a franchise system. So I worked for the company, but you had a bottler. And it was always very important to be able to persuade the bottler to do what the company wanted, or at least to come to some <laughs> sort of a p- partnership. And I was very old to go into marketing. Um, you know, you go into marketing when you're 21 and I was about 28. So the reason that um, Coca-Cola took me into the marketing department 
was not because I was good at marketing because I didn't have that much marketing experience, but because I had worked in a factory that was really highly unionized, I knew how to negotiate. And that was one of the things that Gallagher's had taught, taught me how to do. Wow. And so they thought that I would be a good negotiator with the bottler. And that's why I got the job. Yeah, that's really interesting. The comparison between, you know, the bottler and the production line when you worked in Gallagher's, when you worked uh-huh. in tobacco. Any stories from even Gallagher's were like a real cut your teeth sort of moment where you learned how to negotiate with people, you know, frontline workers who had very different aim of, say, management? I think so. I, I mean, I, um, first of all, the workers that I worked with taught me a lot. And you've okay. got to realize we're um, in Cardiff, you, um, I was working just after all the you know issues had come down about closing down the mines. So a lot of the women who worked in it was mostly women who worked in the factory. They came down in buses from the mining um, uh, villages, and then a lot of the union reps who were the fitters and the engineers were either ex steel workers or ex miners. So it was very heavily unionized, and I really realized that I couldn't do anything. So like if a machine broke down, I couldn't fix it or whatever. I had to wait. And one day it got really, really hot. And the union people all knew what was in the rules. And it was basically if it got above a certain temperature, you had to serve cold drinks. So I can remember them coming to my office and saying, Maddie, the temperature's going to go, you know, it's going up, it's going to reach us today. You better have the cold drinks in. <laughs> and having to go and talk to the factory manager going, I think we have to go out. To, I don't know where we're going to go to, but we better have cold drinks in or everybody's going to stop work. So that was uh, one of my, uh, and again, it was a great learning of how to manage people um, yes. and take people as they are. Um, and I think that's uh, stood me in good stead going along. Where'd you get the drinks? Like how many did you have to buy? Um, oh, so we had to buy um, enough for 120 people. And <laughs> okay, so somebody yeah. went out to the cash and carry and got them and brought them back again. <laughs> that's incredible. Okay, so you're in Coke. You're, you want to get into marketing. You don't have that much marketing experience. How did you start to really strengthen that marketing muscle like any significant reps as such that you did that really kind of leveled you up in that area well i think there was a couple of things the day that i joined as brand manager of coca-cola so coca-cola was the biggest brand and my boss resigned so (laughs) i was sort of left on the first day knowing nothing or knowing not very much Um, And um, Coke at that stage was going through a lot of launches. So they were launching a new global campaign. They were doing a a huge promotion. They were about to sponsor the Coca-Cola Hitman tour with Pete Waterman. So all these projects landed on my desk at the same time. And um, I had to work directly with um, the head of marketing for Coke um, GB. And so that in that first year, I mean, you just learn so much because one of the the beauties of Coke is um, that, you know, people come to Coke first. So you're always at the forefront of marketing and trying new things. And I also had a mentor throughout my career at Coke who had a lot of confidence in me, a guy called Steve Jones, who eventually became the chief marketing officer at Coke. And Steve and I did loads of stuff together because I can remember going to him and saying he had come in from America and said, right, we're going to shake this up and we want to do things really differently. I want everybody to come and bring me an idea. And I love sponsorship and I love especially the entertainment side more than Mm -hmm. the sports side. And I said to him, look, we could have a brilliant uh, property um, in terms of the Capital Radio um, show uh, or music festival. And also, I think we should sponsor every local, you know, the main local radio stations um, in some way and do syndicated um, programming throughout the country because then we're really touching people where they live and we can build that yeah, connection wow. and whatever. 
And so we it's did like that. old school podcasting. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so we ended up doing that. And then also um, because I was um, in charge of um, Coca-Cola and Diet Coke, um, I was dealing with the biggest media budgets. Um, and I really made my career at Coke um, by looking at return on investment. And that gave me a bridge with the finance department who never trust marketing. You're only out there. To, but if you can show them what it's going to do, and I put a lot of rigor um, into that. So that was really how I made my marketing career. And then I was on so many committees, in, uh, international committees. I ended up sometimes I was in Atlanta more than I was um, in England. So sponsorship is so important. Like I know I've benefited immensely from sponsorship in various degrees, you know, over the years. And it's lo- it's a lovely model because when it's done right, the business wins and the person who's being sponsored wins, you know, because if you can deliver value to the brand, excellent. But that capital for someone who's starting out or someone who's looking to grow is it's a lifeline you know it's how things grow and so I do love that model and I did want to ask you a story something about like how did you launch Kylie Minogue's career? So what happened was Pete Waterman had come to talk to us about sponsoring something that he wanted to do and what he wanted is vision for he was at that stage it was Stock Aitken Waterman and they were doing hit after hit and they had a lot of young artists. And I always preferred to sponsor uh, property versus people, individual people, because it can blow up really badly uh, on you <laughs> if you do that way. And he had an idea that eventually he wanted, he'd signed Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan, and he wanted them to be in a West End show. So that was okay. his big vision. But they needed, they had, they had started their singing careers, but they'd never performed live. And he wanted to take them out live and give them experience. So his idea was to have um, the um, Hitman Roadshow and that we would go to and run under 18 um, uh, shows in mecha ballrooms around the country to give all his young acts experience in front of a live audience but it was sort of off broadway if you like what's and a mecca so, ballroom so it used to be that there were discotheques called meccas that were around around the country uh they were in places like birmingham and there were places up in liverpool and right Sweet. around the country so just and, like a cool and, venue yeah, and they were closed. They didn't open until like 10 o'clock at night. So if you ran a show between 5 and 7, it was good for them because they were getting people in and it was all under I 18 like and there was no Smart. alcohol. And obviously that was good for Coke. So anyway, we, we had uh, 10 artists on the, on the show. Uh, people like Sonia and whatever were just starting out and they all got on the bus and they went on and did the show. And either... Um, Kylie or Jason would headline and that was the start of Kylie's singing career. That's incredible. I love that so much. I wanted to ask you, you're, I think, this only other person, the second person that I've talked to that climbed really high in the ranks of Coca-Cola was a guy from Downpatrick. His name's Neville Isdell. He's about to turn 80. He's a good friend of the show. Did you, we interviewed him before and he's been on a few other stuff we've done, but have, did you ever come across him in your time at Coke? Because it's, I, I kind of feel like, I don't know, there's just like Spider-Man meme I'm thinking of where it's like two people dressed up like Spider-Man are like looking at each other, pointing at each other like, hey, you're like me. It would be so strange and a global massive corporation like Coke to come across someone else from Northern Ireland. Yeah, so we, we knew each other because we found each other and then we were the only two people from Northern Ireland, especially when it came to the Atlanta days. So what happened was, I was working in um, Northwest Europe um, and uh, that was the division I was in. um, And Neville came back as head of Northwest Europe. So before I went to Atlanta, I was actually working for Neville and pulling the business plans together for all of his countries um, to go and do the business plan. Business plan and Coke is a big deal of going to Atlanta, etc. So um, I did that for Neville. 
And then when I moved to Atlanta, um, I would meet him when he was over, uh, when he either went to Hellenic Bottlers or whatever. And then he left the company and I left the year before he came back. And I would I probably say, yeah, I see you. If he had come back while I had still been there, I probably would never have left Coke. Wow. He's somebody <laughs> I really, really respect and uh, admire. And he's just a good person as well. That's fascinating. So why did you leave Coke then? So the last um, couple of years, I had my dream job. Um, uh, the Coca-Cola company had never had a strategy department. I know yeah, that you sounds... rose up really, really high. Vice presidents a... of global strategy. That's... Yeah. <sighs> so and it and um, you know, it used to be for Coke. It was the CEO and the COO decided the direction for the company, which was really easy when you had more countries to go to. But when you got to 188 countries, you had to sort of get vertical growth instead of just horizontal growth. And that the company had stalled and was in a few problems. Um, so there was um, three of us who were asked to put together a strategic plan for the company and then get that implemented um, throughout. So that was a wonderful opportunity for me. Incredible. And it gave me a lot of opportunity to work with the CEO, the COO and the CFO and really see what it was like at senior levels and yeah. some of the um the, some of the things that went on and basically uh, you know after doing that for um 3 years um it was at a time when um it was hard to get and a challenge to get everybody in the executive committee to be on the same page and i sort of looked back and said well you know can i really influence them to go in a different direction and it was going to be difficult um, and also I thought I'm going to be doing the same job for the next 15 years because there's nothing else I want to do in Coke. Um, and maybe it's time to try something else. So wow. at that stage, I did. So you're in Atlanta, Georgia, mm -hmm. which is a fun part of the world. You just leave Coke. Why did you choose to set up your own company in Atlanta? Because, you know, you've traveled the world at this point. I'm sure you've traveled extensively throughout your career, never mind the places where you actually lived and worked. Why Georgia? Why did you feel like that was a great place to set up your, your business? And Venadar, is that the right pronunciation? Yes. So um, so what happened was, um, really, it was because the children were at school. Uh, so oh, of one of yeah. yeah. So one of the reasons I forgot about the twins. <laughs> yes. So one of the reasons that I didn't want to come to Atlanta. So I've always said, like, I was never going to go to England. I was never going to go to America if it was the last place on earth. Certainly not Atlanta. But anyway, I end up ended up at those places. Um, but um, I didn't. One of the things with Coke is if you go international, you you move every two years or every three years. And Coke had really wanted me to come to Atlanta and I really didn't want to come. And so um, they sort of made me an offer I couldn't refuse. But the, the part of that that I said was, I am not going to move every two years because I thought mm. it was too disruptive for the children. Absolutely. And so um, the children were in school there. You know, we were well settled as a family. And, and so that's why we've stayed in Atlanta. And I never thought I would be in Atlanta forever, um, but it, uh, you know we're still here 25 years later. So, wow, incredible! So Venadar was very much still working with that big company, like Fortune 500. I just pulled the list of clients there. You know, you obviously did a lot more work with Coca-Cola, General Mills, Kimberly Clark. I'm sure there was many, many more. Yeah, I really would love to know why then the Hamill Network. So you're kind of playing with huge players on the global stage. I'm sure big budgets, lots of status, lots of prestige. What kind of gave you itchy feet then to make your next pivot? So basically, um, they um, some of the smaller companies um, that I so I what I was doing was helping big companies find small companies who had something really new and really innovative. Um, that they could invest in or buy 
so that they could get into new areas because big companies are hopeless at innovation. They're just too bureaucratic. <laughs> it's far easier to buy something. <laughs> correct, correct. And you know it works. Um, so, but some of the, you know, so I was looking at a lot of small companies and I was really seeing emerging trends and I had a really good view of what was going to be successful five years or 10 years down the line. And so some of these small companies were coming to me and saying, like, really good at um, strategic planning and business planning. And you know what the big companies want. Would you do our plans for us, et cetera? Mm. And so... You um, speak the language. You know how to get us bought. Can you yes. kind of help us with our homework type yes. thing? Yes, you know exactly. all the answers on the test. Yeah, yes. that's cool. I love that. So, so basically, um, Venadar wasn't set up to do that at all. Um, so I decided, and um, you know, strategic planning really was my thing that, you know, I was good at. So I decided that I would go off and just do, I would only have a small number of clients so I could really work with people. Um, and that person that I mentioned who was my mentor in um, the UK and in Atlanta, uh, Steve Jones, um, had set up a company called Fairlife Milk. He had left um, Coke as well. And he'd, he'd done that maybe f five or six years before um, uh, he had left five or six years before that. And then, as I say, set up Fairlife Milk. And he said to me, will you come in and do our business plan for us and see what we need to do to really um, get this company going? Um, so I went in and did the Fairlife plan, helped them with innovation and stuck around with them for about three years um, and helped them, helped them get sold. Um, yeah. And uh, what did they sell for? It was something absolutely bonkers well it was a lot of money it was a lot yeah. of money and uh dollar shave club was the same i was the first consultant that they had in there and they got sold to unilever for a billion so that was Incredible. good i was in the states i lived in the states when fairlife launched and i remember just being like this is incredible like natural high protein milk that was yes that's that company wasn't it yeah that's exactly yeah and so like how did it work because i remember like looking into the science i was like this is this is mind-blowing. They basically would filter the milk in such a way that there was more protein in it. That's a yeah. very basic understanding oh, of it. Like, Yeah, but I mean, it's a great story because the guy who actually founded Fairlife is a vet from Puerto Rico. Huh. And he was always about the cows being well looked after um, mm -hmm. to, uh, and they would produce better milk. And um, he noticed um, on his land at some stage, that as you had um, rainwater that came out, stuff got caught in filters if there was stuff in it. And he thought, could we apply that to milk? So he developed the whole system to filter milk into its different parts, into the lactose, the protein, etc., and then recombine it again uh, to be able to have higher protein, etc. So wow. that was how Fairlife Milk came to be. That's genius. I mean, the Fairlife chocolate milk got me through many is a hungry lunchtime in, in <laughs> Every, Manhattan. So <laughs> that's, that's everybody's favorite. But it was really difficult for me working there, actually, because going back to my Cave Hill school days, I can't drink milk because you used to have the little bottles of milk and they were always warm and ah. I can't drink milk at all. So having to go to Fairlife, I used to have to tell the story. Well, it's because of the milk I got in primary school. I can't drink milk. <laughs> that's incredible so i would like to now answer a question that my granny would love to know at this stage which is maddie hamill what on earth is it that you actually do and maybe a good way of getting there is if you take us through maybe like a case study so i don't know you could do tab clear you could do egg life okay. you could do dollar shave whatever you yeah. want let me do egg life because I'm working on that at the moment. And so this is a story that sort of comes from uh, the fair life story, because the next farm down the road from where the cows are is a chicken um, uh, farm. And sure. uh, the guy who owns that is called Marcus Rust. And he is a friend of the fair life farmer. And um, he and um, he's a great feeling of wanting to do good for the world. And one of his employees, Peggy Johns, was, um, had health issues. 
and she was fiddling about in her kitchen and she came up with this way to make a tortilla wrap out of egg whites. And she knew <laughs> how to do this and whatever. And so Marcus um, had me down to the farm and had me taste these wraps and said, do you think, Maddie, that there's a business in here? And so I said, well, let me go and I will do a business plan. So I, the way I do business plans is I think about the future. So I start with where do we need to get to and what could that look like and what could we be creating if we had no constraints whatsoever. And so I looked at all the trends, like what was happening with health and wellness and what people were thinking about in food and how those markets were going to grow. And was there anything like it on the market? And when did people um, eat tortillas and all that sort of stuff? And then I came together and I size up the market to say, how big could this market be? Mm -hmm. If we really did it well, what would the, um, the shape of it uh, look like? And could we, you know, I always think there's just three questions um, to, to answer. Will anybody like the product? Will anybody buy it? Um, is the market big enough for us to get some sales? And then can we make money? And so if you can say the market's going to be big enough, you think you can sell it, and also you think you can make money at it, you probably have a business. Um, and so I do a business plan of what this could look like in five years' time. And then I now, I've done enough of these that I have a playbook in terms of how you get started, what mm. do you do? And so at the beginning of these um, assignments, I often will go on to the management team. I'll still be working as the Hamill Network, but people never know that I'm a contractor. And I go in <laughs> and I can help them because I can do most things. I can do sales. I can do marketing. And Egg Life was something that probably is one of the highlights of my career because we did the business plan and decided that was in 2018 in November. In January, there was a business. We created a brand and that means you have to think about what's the brand going to stand for and translate that into what's your, um, you know, your brand going to look like, what's your packaging going to look like, et cetera. And because there's long lead times on packaging, particularly in food, you have to be out well ahead of when you're going to, you know, going to go to market. So we decided we're going to do it in January. We had the brand and everything done by March. We, wow. there's, there is a big, big exhibition for um, food and beverage in the States called Expo West. And we went to Expo West and it was the first time I've ever had buyers um, from the likes of the big supermarkets and like Costco's, Whole Foods, whatever, saying, can we have this product now? Can we have this wow. product now? And Crazy. we at that stage didn't even have a factory. And so what we did was we built a factory and um, had all the machinery in by uh, July that year. And my playbook is launch small, first of all, in your own mm. backyard. And then you can basically tinker and get the things right before you go into the big time and into That's the great. big markets. So we had a pilot line and we were able to sell into some of the big supermarkets in um, Chicago. And we had product on the market by um, October that uh, in 2019. So that was less than a year from being asked to do the business plan. And then <laughs> um, we built a commercial line and we launched properly the following of February and COVID struck. So being oh. able to build a company and a brand and we'll do about 50 million in sales this year um, oh. will be, um, you know, and especially during COVID, I think has been a good achievement. What's the sell? Like what's the, the big kind of pain that it's solving is it like this wrap is high protein so basically it that it's, it doesn't contain you know an allergen or something no it's basically if you most um most tortillas are made out of flour and so if you're diabetic 
or you have an uh, you know an allergy to uh, flour or whatever, you've got a problem. Yes, and or if you're on a keto diet or whatever. So because mm. this is only egg whites, so it's very high in protein. It has no sugar. Um, people absolutely love them. And also Great. because we put uh, flavors in, you know, uh, as in herbs and spices. So we've maybe five different varieties and we've got a sweet one now with sweet cinnamon. People can use it for lots of different occasions. So it's truly differentiated in the market. There isn't anything like it. Incredible. I don't even know if this is a question I can ask you, but do you operate as a business? Do companies pay you? Do they give you a percentage of equity? Is it different for each client? Like what way does that work? Um, it's basically, I usually am on a retainer with, um, and yeah, that's cool. the business model I like, um, yeah. because then I'm incented to do the right thing, uh, mm-hmm. because I, I don't have skin in the game. Now, there's a couple of companies um, that will say, oh, you know, you, uh, you know, we'd like you to work for equity. And I'll maybe do some of those if I think it's going to be a winner. But um, I need to have um, uh, cash as well, because we've got to pay the bills. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I really love what you said there. You said it will help me do the right thing. Can you explore that a wee bit more? Why you think having skin in the game would yeah. maybe bias you in a way? So, so basically, sometimes um, people will want, um, especially if you're um, involved in buying and selling businesses, they want you to take a percentage of the um, you know purchase price. Um, and I just don't think that that um, incents you to do the right thing. Because if for my client, I'm trying to get things at the best price that I possibly can if I'm on the buying side. And if I'm on the selling side, I want them to go to the right strategic buyer or the right um, place that's going to be good for the company and it's going to As give them a future. As opposed to giving you a good yeah. buyout. Yeah. yeah okay. And also people will ask me, um, you know, um, a lot of times, um, you know, can I recommend an advertising agency or a research agency and whatever? And research agencies and advertising agencies and whatever are always prepared to pay you finder's fees, but I never take those because I want to give my unbiased opinion. And I yeah. just, I seem, one of the things I think throughout my career, I've been pretty good at introducing people and connecting people. And I'll go, oh, you need to talk to someone. So, and I think that's probably one of your Northern Ireland things that, you know, come along. <laughs> um, but again, I do it because I think it's the right thing to do. Um, I'll never take money for it. I love the egg life story because even as you're talking, you know, I'm having flashbacks of like all the different parts of your journey. You know, you've got like the the strategy component, which was obviously big in Coke. You've got like the production factory side, which is like you and Gallagher's. It's really cool to see how valuable each stage of your journey has made you in terms of what you're doing now. And I love what you said, how you become part of a team to the point where people don't even really know you're a contractor because you can do everything you're able to really meaningfully engage with each part of the business and and give really really solid strategy it's it's very cool well i think the whole thing is you know um i've been around the block a few times and if you've <laughs> seen it once or seen it twice you know sort of what's going to work and what's not what's a what's a big mistake you you made like any big blunders that like was a hard lesson that you learned um i think um, one of um, the um, hardest lessons um, was really, um, you know, you, you look back and you go, was it good to leave Coke or not? Um, mm. And I think at the end it was. But you can go back and look and say, you know, was that a huge mistake? It would have been very much easier to coast. They wanted me to stay, etc. And things would have been a lot easier if I had done that. But then I wouldn't have had the experiences. And I think I'm just one of those people who needs to keep learning. And, Absolutely. You know, so. Very cool. Okay, time for a clickbait question. Talk to me about cannabis. <laughs> so um, it's not potheads and all of that sort of stuff. So I ne- you never tell, in business, you never tell people that you've got a PhD. I mean, you just don't do that because they think you're going to come over all academic, et cetera. Um, so, but... Um, I am one of the growth areas in consumer goods coming forward is medical marijuana and cannabis. 
And it was something that I was interested in. And I did think it was um, hilarious that having a PhD in agriculture botany, that that actually could be useful again. And <laughs> so um, I, um, uh, I ended up um, that uh, I was in New York. Um, I was doing an assignment for um, an advertising agency up there. And I was staying in a hotel and the doors opened and one of my ex-friends from Coke that I hadn't seen for a long time, Dil Driscoll, um, was there. And it was basically, Maddie, what are you doing here? And I'm, Dil, <laughs> what are you doing here? And uh, on our ride down in the lift at six o'clock in the morning, he had told me that his wife was staying there. He had to go for the evening. Would I have a drink with her? So, And I knew Susan. And so I went and uh, I had a drink with Susan and um, she told me that she was working in the cannabis um, business, but in medical marijuana. And um, the, in, in the, in <laughs> yeah, the yeah, she's not a drug dealer. <laughs> no, no. So it's very regulated in the States that you have to, the States are um, loosening up and allowing there to be medical marijuana, but you have to apply for a license. And it's a very stringent process to get a license. Um, and then you can develop your business from there. And so um, Susan had um, helped some people get a license and actually set up one of the first companies in um, Florida uh, as a medical marijuana company. And she'd left that and she was getting asked to write these licenses. And part of the license, the beginning of it, is how are you going to grow the cannabis? How are you going to process it? How are you going to make the medical products? And then how are you going to sell them? If and she always there was an agricultural botanist that she knew. Yes, exactly. So she hated <laughs> having to write the first chapters because she didn't know anything about the cultivation and the processing. So she said to me, "Would you write those chapters?" for me and we'll do these licenses <laughs> together. So we teamed up and we do some <sighs> medical marijuana licenses just a couple a year. And then um, because she's pretty well known in the business, um, we get asked um, you know, to help with very, various other cannabis related things. So at the moment, we're helping um, a company in Israel that has a really breakthrough way of doing cell tissue culture to be able to produce um, different um, active ingredients um, from um, plants and plant cells. So they have um, a, a, a product um, to help your blood circulation that comes from grapes. And now they've been able to isolate uh, cannabinoids. And so we're helping them develop that business um, and bring it uh, to the States. So um, it's very interesting. It's sort of like full circle and it nice is to be able circle to, for yeah, you, yeah, yeah. So it's nice to be able to use um, sort of the agriculture botany plus the business plan and plus growing small companies. So we get a couple of those assignments. Incredible, very very cool. What are you looking forward to next in your career? You know, so, like you, you've you've experienced so many things. What kind of gets you hungry these days because you have done a lot? So I love um, working with um, companies, um, helping them get up and going and to be able to you know, plan forward. Um, and I love working in different areas. So um, you know, thinking about going back to my media background, you know, what's post-social? What's that going to look like and working with companies in that area? Been able to, you know, my bread and butter will always be food and beverage because that's what I know. But also looking at, um, you know, new things like the canvas, etc. Um, so I will continue to work and do that. I think my passion and one of my friends, you know, said to me, "You've been trying to do this for years. I'd love to be able to help Northern Ireland companies, whether that mm -hmm. is to help them get up and going, or if they're coming to America." at least be there to tell them the way it works because, um, you know, I think America is very different, um, yeah. and you know, because you've worked here, um, than um, the UK or um, Northern Ireland or even Southern Ireland. Um, so I think being able to stop people falling into pits when you can see it coming um, and keep them out of trouble would be um, a really exciting thing to do. 
It's cool. Well, I'll definitely be watching this space. One of the questions I had was, uh, it's a good time to do it now, how has your view on Northern Ireland changed over the years? Obviously, you have a very unique story being brought up. We already said 11 plus, time of the troubles, Cave Hill, working for the Department of Agriculture and then leaving. How has, you know, the years and the decades being away changed your perception of Northern Ireland? How do you feel about home? How have you seen it change from a distance? And of course, you've, you've been back many times. So basically, I think um, Northern Ireland, um, the way I perceive it now, is very, very different from the place that I um, grew up in. But the foundations are there that are the same. Um, you know, education still important. Um, you know, there's opportunities, etc. But I feel that Northern Ireland is a gem that nobody knows about. And um, I tried bringing entrepreneurs, American entrepreneurs, over to Northern Ireland about maybe 15 years ago to try and get them to mentor um, Northern Ireland companies. But we never really managed to get that um, to sort of take off. And what I feel is now the technology sector has grown so much. The creative sector has grown so much, but there's not enough people know about it. And, yep. you know, I think the more that we can get um, Northern Ireland connected into the business community here. Now, one of the big differences in Atlanta is um, this is the place that the first new Irish consulate um, was opened up since 1932, I think. And, um, you know, that has made a big difference because you now have more programs going on between Georgia Tech which is a huge, you know, top 10 engineering technology um, center and um, universities in, um, in Ireland. And I would love that there would be much more linkage there, particularly mm. now because Atlanta has been found um, by the tech companies because we didn't have a big tech sector. Um, but now this is the place that Microsoft has put its new campus. Google has put its new campus. The innovation centers that are opening up around that both in terms of biotech and um, medical uh, engineering and um, technology. And those are all things that I think could be things that Northern Ireland, I perceive, is very good at. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's loads of people we're going to have a chat after recording I could potentially connect you with. We have a, a beautiful studio here in Ormo Bath, which is, you know, a tech hub. It's a co-working space. It's a bit of an incubator. And there's some really interesting things happening here in the city um, that I think you would love to hear about. And I think you you could be super helpful with as well, given your experience and your background. Very cool. Uh, tell me about a really, really challenging moment. Like a moment where, you know, that like really hot, feeling of stress where you're just like I am at my absolute limit right now tell me about one of them and how were you able to overcome it well I think there's probably one or well probably one before I moved to America so when I was um, working in coke um, in Great Britain um, there was a lot of pressure on to deliver results. And obviously, I was working on the two biggest um, brands. Um, and um, work was really hard because you were having to, I mean, I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I would get the train at quarter to six. I would get to the office by half past seven in London. I would leave there at nine o'clock and I'd be home at one o'clock in the morning. Whoa. And I did that for about um, four years and I was just so tired. And I can remember one day lying in bed and just going, you know, I just wish I, and I had the twins and they were at home and, you know, they were young. Um, but I can remember just being so tired going, I really don't want to get up in the morning because I'm just so tired. I can't go on. And I think at that moment, I realized though I loved my job, it was just getting too tough and too tiring because I was good at it. I was getting put on more and more international committees. So not only did I have my Great Britain um, work that I had to do, I was running strategy for Neville over Europe. Then I was coming to the States to do stuff. And it was all just too much. 
And I took a backward step and said, right, I'm going to look for another job. That's what I, I need to do um, because this just can't go on. And, uh, you know, uh, my health is going to um, cut out, I think. I mean, I was very well. And other than being tired, there was nothing wrong with me. But so at that point, um, I did start to look for another job outside Coke. But that at the, exactly the same time was when they offered me the opportunity to go to Atlanta. And I thought, well, if I go to Atlanta, I'm, I'll be dealing with corporate and I won't have all the travel and we'll see how that works out. And at that stage, uh, Paul had big changes in GlaxoSmithKline. Um, so he was at a point of, uh, you know, crossroads as well. So it worked out uh, fine. But the challenge really was just having to keep all the balls in the air. And yeah. I have a work ethic of wanting to do things to the best of my ability and perfection and not let anything slip. Um, and as I say, you just can end up in a circle where you're going round and round and not thinking as clearly as you should. Absolutely. Yeah. Very insightful. And we've all been there at various points in our own lives. So thank you for sharing that. What about like the flip of that, like a real punch in the air moment of like absolute euphoria, excitement, like, yes, we did it. Um, I think for me personally, um, when I... When Steve Jones came to um, Coke, um, which was the first year that I went in there, he said to me, you know, one day you'll be a vice president of the Coca-Cola company. And I went, Steve, don't be ridiculous. People like <laughs> you and I don't become vice presidents of the Coca-Cola company. Dude, what a prophet. I love yeah. that. <laughs> and um, the day that um, I actually did um, become a vice president and got my promotion, my family were actually over visiting from Northern Ireland. And I can wow. remember going home that night and that was a real sort of high point, um, you know. And then I was, um, uh, I had another mentor who said, oh, you should be on a board. And I was on a public company board. And I remember the day that I got um, that and thought, you know, that is something else. That was a good milestone. Wow. Very, very cool. Well, if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland, dead or alive, out for uh, whatever you drink, pint, cup of coffee, glass of wine, glass of Fairlife milk, obviously not, uh, <laughs> who would you take? Where would you take them? Why? I think the person I would take is Gloria Honeyford. And oh, yeah. the reason I say that is when I was growing up and things were really bad, Gloria was on the radio every morning. And as long as she was there and calm, you knew everything would be all right. Mm. And she gave a sense of normality that wasn't there. And I don't know if people give her cre credit for that stage because everybody knows the way she is now. And I think she was someone who managed having a family and having to work and having to make the move to England and some difficult decisions. And obviously, she's been through a lot of tragedy as well. And so I just admire her so much. And um, we'd love to, you know, she would be the person I would love to have a conversation with about how she managed, um, you know, to do it all. Because I'm sure there's things I could still learn from uh, her. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Okay, let's go two more. Yeah, let's do two more. If you could go back in time to say, what would be a good age to go? Yeah, we'll do it, Tane. If you could go back in time to an 18-year-old Maddie and you had a couple of minutes of her time, what sort of things would you say to her? I think uh, don't ha don't be so sure you've got it all planned out <laughs> uh, because actually I think God has a better plan. I mean, everything that's happened to me is because a door closed and there was a better yeah. opportunity that, around the corner, only I couldn't ever see it at that time. And just don't worry so much. You know, I've been, you know, through your, through your life, you worry about everything and you, you, you want to be able to say, you know, it's not, you don't need to make it that hard. And it's okay mm -hmm. if the ball drops once in a while, um, yeah. you know, you don't need to worry about it so much. So I think those would be the, um, those would be the two things. It's interesting. You do have a bit of a Joseph story where you've experienced success and triumph through rejection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, you want to be a teacher, you didn't become a teacher, like you want to do this, I, didn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> didn't get into medicine because didn't get the AA levels, didn't get into um, teacher training, which was all I wanted to do. 
Um, I didn't want to go and do the thing at Gallagher's because I wanted to stay in Northern Ireland. <laughs> but, you know, that happened. And then, you know, the uh, so it just seems every time, you know, you're just you can just see you're not meant to be there anymore. It's time to move on, even if you don't know what you're moving on to. And I could never have imagined my life now, you know, the way it is now and the wonderful experiences and people have been so good to me um, along the way that, you know, it's, uh, again, um, for a strategic planner who's telling companies, you know, you've got to set to your destination where you're going to and move towards it. I'm not a very good uh, illustration. <laughs> I love that there. There's something about rolling with the punches, though, too, isn't there? And yeah. doing what's in front of you. That's one of my takeaways from this chat today, for sure. Final question, then, Maddie, and it's it's a it's a difficult one. It really works if it's just kind of the first thing that comes into your head. But if I ask you, what is the kindest thing someone's ever done for you? What springs to your mind? I think can I have two. You can indeed. Um, so I'll give you a professional one and a personal one. Oh, yes. So, Round it off. I yeah. love it. Do it. Making my job easy. <laughs> so the professional one is when I decided that I was going to set up on my own. Um, people were very, very good to me. Um, so Steve Jones said to me, right, if you want to do this, I will give you work. And there were several other people in, um, you know, in Coke, you leave the family, but you never leave the family. And the <laughs> Coke, the Coke network has been very, very good to me. And the Coca-Cola company has been very, very good to me. Um, and so um, there were several other people who I had worked with um, at Coca, whatever, said, oh, if you're out on your own now, um, we want you to work with, um, we want you to work with us. So to me, that was great kindness in terms of they didn't have to do it, but they did to enable me to do something that I wanted to do. And then the other one may sound strange, um, but it's um, my husband, Paul, because Paul, you know, you've seen I do things and I throw, you know, I get myself comfortable, I throw it all up in the air and I go on to something else. Um, he's never um, I blamed me. Or said, don't do it, even though I put our family at risk so many times. Um, and also, it was never our intention when we moved to America that Paul would give up work. Um, mm. But his work permit took a while to come through. And by that stage, the childcare in America wasn't as good as we had at home. So he gave up his whole career to bring up the children, particularly because I was traveling um, internationally. And um, he did that with no. Um, recourse and you know I do think um, you know that's kindness in its um, most practical way and um, I couldn't have done any of the things I'm doing without Paul it's great sorry I've got one more just I just remembered about it yeah uh, tell me about your what's a polite way to say this I'll just say it and a cult-like fascination with Irish rugby and the pilgrimages that you guys go on. Oh, so <laughs> so um, Paul played rugby. I mean, that's the big thing that we miss in America, really. Um, the pub and the rugby, because Paul played rugby uh, in, um, uh, in Northern Ireland and then in, <laughs> in England. And our lives were sort of around the rugby club. Um, and so when um, the children went off to college and Paul still wasn't working but, um, at that stage, we said, what is one thing that we would love to do that we just is so beyond all of our dreams, but um, we can't do it with the children being at home? And so we said, right, the one thing would be if we could go and see Ireland playing in the Rugby World Cup. So when the children went off to college in 2010, we, it was only by, by chance on Thanksgiving Day, I saw that there was a cheap flight from Atlanta to New Zealand because Virgin Australia <laughs> was setting, setting up. And I said to Paul, Rugby World Cups in New Zealand um, next year. And we've said this is something we'd like to do. And the tickets that are normally $10,000 are $1,500. Do you oh. think this is a sign that we should go? <laughs> so we went to New Zealand, had a brilliant time. And we were in Japan last time round. 
and we've got our tickets for France. So um, we're all set to go. So just love it. Just and we don't take that much holiday in between. And then for those four weeks, we just go and travel around the country. So nice for for so many reasons. Like, do you think it's important to have things like that to kind of stay connected to home, if that makes sense? I find whenever I left, I never became more Irish until the day I left Ireland, you know? And I found myself like obsessing over fi- like where to buy like Lucasade Orange in New York and you know yeah. all these like it- Lilt and all these things that I never even liked when I was back I know. Up, but I became That's like really into it when I yeah. left. Yeah so we are so we're, uh, and I have to say since you know the 25 years we've been here the internet has been such a wonderful thing because mm. it really has changed that you know um, I still listen to BBC in the morning and I listen to Stephen Nolan and all those ah, sort of yeah. things and I've got my Belfast Telegraph and uh, so, you know, you can keep up with things at home. But I do think, uh, you know, certainly with the rugby, it's, it's lovely being um, with so many other people from home uh, for those four weeks. Awesome. Maddie, this has been incredible. I really, really appreciate you giving the time and then more importantly for sharing everything you did. I loved it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Unbelievable stuff. Look, thank you so much once again for listening. My name is Matthew Thompson and we're on a mission to share 350 conversations that celebrate Northern Ireland and the incredible people who call it home. Massive thanks once again to NI Connections for making today's episode possible. And like I said at the top of the show, you can find out more about our global diaspora, listen to other conversations in this series and sign up to their free monthly newsletter by visiting niconnections.com. Other than that, hope you really enjoyed today's episode. And I look forward to catching you again soon.